1: The scripture reading today is from the book of Isaiah, chapter 52, verse 7 through 10. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. Listen, your watchmen lift up their voices. Together they shout for joy. When the Lord returns to Zion, they will see it with their own eyes. Burst into songs of joy together, you ruins of Jerusalem, for the Lord has completed, comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord will lay bare his holy arm in the sight of all nations, and all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. We go to Luke 1, verse 67 through 79. His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets of long ago. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show mercy to our ancestors, and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies, and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace
0: that ends the reading of the scripture. Well, good morning. Great to have you here today on this beautiful December day. Seems like it's finally turned winter, hasn't it? How many of you happy about that? A Few. All right. All right. I know that there are some of you weird people, like my wife, who uh, who really like the winter. But uh, anyway, we get it today, and so hopefully you're enjoying it. Uh, well, before we get started, uh, I wanted to to let you know that. You know, we're going through uh, the Advent story from the Gospel of Luke, but we're actually not going to end Luke with Advent. This is actually kind of a kickoff to uh, going through the book of Luke this winter and spring and probably into the summer. And then we're actually going to continue right into the book of Acts uh, because they are actually kind of two books in one or one book in two. Uh, Luke wrote both of them, and, uh, and so we thought it would be good this year to just walk our way through both of those books to give you a sense of the whole story of the gospel. And so we're going to start with Advent, which is a good place to start, uh, go all the way through Easter, and then continue on after that. Now, one of the things that you're going to find in the gospel of Luke is that Luke, uh, among all of the other Uh, gospel writers focuses the most on what you would call economic issues. Uh, that, that certainly he is concerned about our spiritual life, but he's also very concerned about how Christians, how followers of Jesus, ought to act in the world today, especially as it relates to caring for people who are experiencing poverty. And, and of course, Christmas, we always uh, do something as uh, as a church to uh, to help in that area. And you know, hopefully, we do that throughout the year too. We did uh, oil change, for instance, and we do other things as far as benevolence is concerned. But we always have some kind of a, a project that we do also uh, during winter or during uh, the Christmas season. And so in your bulletin, we've got this green sheet that highlights what we're going to be doing this week or this year. And uh, so we would love for you to follow along. I'm just going to explain it a little bit, Love would love for you to be a part of it. I'm going to talk to you about how you can be involved in our Christmas outreach this year. Now, what we're doing is, is we're actually partnering with our friends at Wayman AME and also Westwood Church, which is a church down in uh, the southern part of the, the metro. And we are going to support uh, 60 families in various ways. Uh, and there are there are really three ways that we're going to do that. Number one, we're going to provide a Christmas basket for these families uh, for Christmas dinner. Uh, we are also going to provide uh, winter gear for them, so coats and hats and gloves and mittens, and uh, and whatever is left over from that is actually going to go to Franklin Middle School, so that they can, so that they are able to uh, you know when they see the need in their students uh, to be able to uh, you know provide them with hats and gloves and coats and mittens and things like that. Uh, And then finally, we are going to provide a gift card uh, to Cub for them uh, for an, on an ongoing basis, and so the ways you can help are right here on the sheet. you can give money, and we have a, a specific uh, Christmas outreach fund set up, and so you can either write on the memo of your check or on your offering envelope uh, and and put it in the box at the back, or we actually have a drop down box in the uh, uh, on, online as well, so you can designate it toward uh, christmas outreach and uh, and that will go to those to those uh, food baskets and we're to try to purchase them through Second Harvest uh, because that's really the most efficient way that we can that we can do that. They get, uh, they get food uh, very inexpensively and so we're going to try to do it through that. Uh, and then if you have uh, gently w- used winter gear, uh, we'd love for you to either bring it here on Sunday or uh, to the office during the week. You can go out and purchase some too. If you want to go to the thrift store, make sure it's in good condition or if you want to buy it new, you can do that. If you have some stuff laying around that you... Uh, that you don't need, you can bring that as well. But we're just going to collect all of those things uh, for, uh, for people to have. And then you can go to Cub and you can purchase $25 gift cards. So purchase them in that, those increments. And uh, we would love uh, for you to help out in that way. So there's, a, there's kind of a project for you to do uh, throughout the month of December. Uh, but what we're going to do is on Sunday, December 19th, we're actually going to have a packing event where we're going to get together, people from all three churches, and we're going to pack up these uh, Christmas meals. It's going to be, that's a Sunday afternoon. It's going to be from 2 to 5. Hopefully from 2 to 4, we'll be able to pack up all of those baskets. And then from 4 to 5, we'll just have a fellowship together. We'll sing some Christmas songs together, uh, enjoy some cookies and hot chocolate and all of that. uh, And that'll be a really good time. And then that next Monday, the day after that, on December 20th, uh, we're going to be, we'll need some volunteers volunteers for two-hour shifts to man this Christmas store that we're going to be doing from 10 until uh, 4.30. So we'll give you more details about that. We'll have a sign-up sheet for you uh, for the Monday event, but have those things on your calendar and uh, start to talk to your family and make plans uh, for how you'll participate in that outreach, and we greatly appreciate this opportunity not just to help families in need, but also to be able to fellowship with people from some other churches around the metro. It'll be pretty, pretty fun. Well, uh, let me start with a question today. How many of you have ever been the bearer of good news to someone? Right? you know what that experience is? Maybe you have something particular in mind, or maybe you don't. Maybe you just kind of know how it feels to be the bearer of good news. Whether or not you're the one who like, did the thing that created the good news, sometimes just finding out about it and telling other people is just a really cool experience. You can, you can make someone's day even if you didn't really do anything. It uh, makes your day a little bit better. It kind of makes me think about like how the Amazon delivery guy must feel when he's delivering packages, right? You know, you have these people who order their new gadget that they wanted and, and now it's finally there. And, and so the Amazon delivery guy goes up and he lays it gently on the porch, right? In the spot that you want it to be and, uh, you know, just with great care. Maybe even, you know, signs a note on there, enjoy your new gadget. Or maybe, maybe he even rings the doorbell and hands it to you personally and say, enjoy the blessings that God has given you. I, want, I just wanted to give this to you. And You know, Amazon delivery guys must be the happiest people on the face of the earth because they get to do, de- is that not how it works? No, that's not, that's not how it works for me either. But doesn't matter. Bringing good news is still a great thing. Uh, These past couple of weeks, we've been looking for uh, a tenant for the Johnson Street property. When we bought the property back in 2013... Uh, we, we had this idea that it was going to be a house that we could use for ministry, that we could use to bless people, and, uh, and that's still something that, that we want to do, uh, but over the last few years, what we've, we've used it for to house staff, which, you know, is helpful with the church budget, frees us to be able to to do other ministry as well. We've also uh, rented it out to, uh, to church members as well. Uh, Zach and Katie had lived there for, I don't know, probably a year and a half or something like that, and... They've, uh, they've now bought a, uh, bought a house and have moved out and so it's open. And so as a board, we started talking about it and praying about, well, what do we, what do, we do with this house? Again, we want it to be a ministry. We want it to be able to, to bless people. Uh, but as we were talking, we realized, well, right now, we actually, as a church, we really need the income from it. And so we wanted to, to rent it out. And uh, if you want sometime I can I can give you the details of what we ended up doing with it it actually was really a blessing from God but but what we ended up what we started doing was was we um, we we put it out on Zillow and uh, and listed it there and immediately I you know we thought we were listing it at market value probably it was maybe a little bit too low initially uh, because we had immediately a bunch of people express interest in it Um, and, uh, and so probably seven or eight people in all, uh, express interest in it. And some of them wanted to move in like ASAP. And one of them was a single mom who has, uh, two kids, eight years, two boys, eight and four, and, uh, and she needed a place, uh, immediately, and, uh, and it was, was kind of cool because I got to meet her and I got to hear about her situation and I got to find out that for five months she had been looking for a place and because of various uh, circumstances, she hadn't been able to find anything. And, uh, and so, you know, we got to talking and I thought, boy, we could, we could really be a blessing to her and to her family right now. And uh, of, all, of the seven or eight people who had, who had applied, I decided... Okay, I think this is the one, and and the board uh, agreed with this. And what was really cool was to be able to give her a call, someone who had been looking for a home for five months, uh, who didn't have a home for five months, uh, who was looking for it, for me to be able to look her in the eye and say, we have a place for you. And, uh, and to be able to see the look in her eyes uh, and, and the happiness that, that she felt there, to finally have sort of the end of what she had been longing for for so long. Now, the cool thing for me is, is I get to be the bearer of good news, even though really it's all of us who are providing this house. You know, we're, we're the ones who do this. But I get to be the one who looks her in the eye and says, hey, I have good news for you. Now, if you've ever been in that situation before, you'll know uh, the feeling that Isaiah gets when he writes in Isaiah 52, verse 7, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. Now, as great as it is to be able to say, we have a house for you, the news that Isaiah is talking about is actually news that is far greater than any news that I've given anyone about a house. You see, in Isaiah chapter 52, he paints this picture of a city that's under siege. And of course, for him, it would have been Jerusalem. And there's a surrounding army that's bent on destruction, but they haven't yet taken the city. And the reason is, is because there was an ally that came along. There's a, 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 an army that came to liberate them from the hand of this destructive army, to come to the aid of this city. And the picture is, and it starts in verse, verse 8, where Isaiah writes this, Listen, your watchmen lift up their voices. Together they shout for joy. Now, the watchmen were the, were the men that were stationed on the wall of the city, that were looking out around the, along the landscape for any kind of news, whether good or bad, to, to prepare the king and the people inside the city for what was about to happen. And what they see in the distance, kind of through the smoke, is a, is a messenger, and he's running toward the city. And he's yelling and he's saying something, maybe some hand signals. Who knows what, uh, what kind of means of communication they had. But as he gets closer and closer, the watchmen are looking and they see that he has good news. And they don't quite know what all of the good news is, but they just start to see out of the distance. And they turn around and they yell into the city and they say, hey, the messenger is coming. And it looks like the liberating army is winning. The enemy is retreating. The city is saved. God has saved our city. How lovely are the mountain, on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. Who proclaim peace. Who bring good tidings. Who proclaim salvation. Who say to Zion, that's Jerusalem, your God reigns. Now, on the surface, it seems kind of funny that that would be the message. Your God reigns when it actually is an army that comes in and and saves the city. But you see, in ancient times, battles were not seen as just battles between armies, but they were seen as battles between gods. So, for instance, when you see David fight Goliath, this was not just David fighting Goliath. It was David's God fighting Goliath. Goliath's God. We saw last week when we were talking about Sennacherib and the Assyrians coming and laying siege to Jerusalem when the representative went there and started mocking Hezekiah. He wasn't just mocking Hezekiah. He was mocking Hezekiah's God. He was saying, you think your God is strong enough to save you from me? Well, we'll see about that. Now, in this case, it was obvious that it was Yahweh who, who saved Jerusalem because they didn't even have to fight at all. But even in cases where the armies did have to fight, it was always, the battle was always seen almost more as a battle of divine forces than it was of chariots and swords and shields. Now, this is not the way that our, our secular world looks at things. Uh, but the Bible tells us that as Christians, we should be alert to the spiritual battle that is going on behind the scenes. And so this is how they looked at it at the time, anyway, the, the watchmen see the messenger, and they hear the message, "The enemy is retreating, retreating, and they yell into the city, and this starts a chain reaction of praise. This is what we see in verse nine. "Burst into songs of joy together, you ruins of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord will lay bare his holy arm in the sight of all the nations and all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. Now we hit on this a couple of we- uh, last week, I guess, um, not very much, but I want to explain kind of an idea or a concept to you today, because the biblical writers all throughout, and you know, it's going to sound kind of academic, but it's really pretty simple. the The biblical writers use a writing convention called typology. Okay. And the reason they do this is based on the belief that they had that God tends to work in consistent ways to fulfill his covenant to his people. And so what you see is, is, both throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, you see them describe certain patterns that happen, ways that God works from the Old Testament to the New. Let me give you a few examples, and I think you'll start to see it a little more clearly. Uh, For instance, last week we talked about how God worked on behalf of Hezekiah and Jerusalem. And he saved the city without them ever having to to fire an arrow. Just like he did with Gideon and uh, his battle with the Midianites. And so we see that in the, that pattern in the Old Testament, but we also see in the New Testament where Jesus is always the fulfillment of these types. He's always the fulfillment of these things. And so in the New Testament, we see that Jesus is the one who fought our battle against sin and death, and he offers forgiveness not because of our effort, not because of anything that we've done, but because of his strength and because of what he has done. Okay, so that's, that's one example. Here's another one. Adam was faced with the choice of being faithful to God or to go his own way. And, of course, we know that Adam failed and went his own way. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul uh, describes Jesus as the second Adam, as the one who was faced with this same temptation to go his own way or to do the will of God. And where the first Adam failed, the second Adam succeeded. During uh, Israel's exodus from Egypt, the Passover lamb gave Israel freedom from Egypt. And of course, we see in the New Testament, Jesus is the perfect and final Passover lamb that gives us freedom from sin. So you start to see some of these types. Well, Christmas actually gives us one of these types kind of on steroids, right? And, And it's this, it's that God fulfills his promises through the miraculous birth of a child. Now, you'll see the type in the Old Testament. Let me give you a few examples. Of course, probably the greatest example is Abraham and Sarah. God promised that Abraham was uh, going to be the father of a great nation, but the problem was is that both he and Sarah were old and they were childless. And so he had some questions about how this was going to happen. And so what did God do? He gave them Isaac, and he became the one to fulfill the promise to Abraham. We might even see it in someone like Moses, who it wasn't really a miraculous birth, but it was a miraculous preservation. You know, he was born kind of the, the normal way, I guess. Uh, but if you remember, when Moses was born, Pharaoh had it out for the boys in, uh, the, the Jewish boys in, in, uh, in Egypt. And so in order to save Moses, his mom put him in a basket and floated him down the river, was found by Pharaoh's daughter, and he was miraculously saved that way and ended up uh, freeing the, uh, the Israelites from Egypt. Here's another example, Hannah. Hannah was also childless, and she cried out to God. She was in agony, and she made a vow that, God, if you will give me a child, then I will dedicate him to your work. And of course, God provided Samuel, who became perhaps Israel's greatest prophet. And then of course, again, we talked about last week, Judah was under siege from Assyria because of their unfaithfulness. And Isaiah told Ahaz that unto us a child will be born, to us a son will be given. And of course, the first fulfillment of that was Hezekiah, who brought Israel back to God and preserved them for a great deal of time. And so then it shouldn't be a great surprise to us that when God chooses to act definitively in history, he does so through the birth of a child. And in fact, the great thing about Christmas is that it does this not just through one baby, but through two. We get a, we get a two for one here. Right? <clears throat> so in chapter 1 of Luke, we have the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth. Now, Zechariah was a priest from a family of priests. He and Elizabeth were up there in years, and they were childless. Does that story sound familiar? <clears throat> but one day, when Zechariah was chosen to burn incense on behalf of the people in the, in the temple, an angel appeared to him and told him that even in their old age, that he and Elizabeth were going to have a child. But this would not be any, just any child. The angel said that they are to name him John, and this is what the angel told Zechariah about John in uh, Luke 1, 14 through 17. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And here's what John who, the writer of the Gospel of John, who I think is no relation to John the Baptist, maybe distantly, who knows. Uh, but uh, how, how John, what John wrote about John the Baptist. He says, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, that light meaning Jesus, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light, but he came as a, a witness to the light. How beautiful on the mountain are the feet of those who bring good news. Well, just like Abraham, Zechariah thought the idea of Elizabeth having a child in her old age was pretty hilarious, a little bit absurd, actually. And so he said, well, God, I'm going to need a sign. And the angel said, all right, I'll give you a sign. You're not going to be able to speak until the child is born. And I'm sure Zechariah said, could you give me a different sign, please? Uh, but, uh, but you know, not being able to speak for a number of months, especially when you're a priest who's you know whose job it is to offer prayers and sacrifice on behalf of the people, that's a little bit problematic. But that's exactly what happened. And so our New Testament passage that Loretta read earlier begins with John's birth. Zachariah and Elizabeth went against family tradition, obeying the the angel. And instead of naming him from the array of family names that were possible, they named him John, just like the angel said. And when they did that, Zechariah actually wrote it on a tablet, and as soon as he did that, Zechariah was able to speak again. And the passage that we have today, what we call Zechariah's song or the Benedictus, are the first words out of Zechariah's mouth after he named him John, under the inspiration Now, there are two parts to Zechariah's song. The first part, verses 68 through 75, he gives God praise for fulfilling the covenant that he had made with his people, Israel, by sending the Messiah. This is what he says in verse 68. He says, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. The literal translation there is, he has visited his people. Now, remember, God had been silent for many, many years. He had been silent for hundreds of years while Israel was in exile. And so imagine how exciting this would have been for Mary and Joseph, of course, but also for Zechariah and Elizabeth to, to see something so significant happening. But not only that, having your own child be an intricate part of the story that's unfolding. And of course, he, they were excited just about having a child when they didn't have a child. But being a part of that story was, was pretty amazing. And so you can imagine that you might write a poem or a song too if, if that happened to you. So in verse 69, he, he kind of clarifies what this vision is. He says, God has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. Now, I used to think that when the Bible talked about a horn of salvation, that it was talking about a trumpet, which kind of makes sense because, you know, armies blow trumpets to signal their coming, but that's actually not what it is. It's actually the horn of a bull, and it symbolizes power and strength, and it's most often applied to a powerful king that is enthroned by God himself. In other words, the king is an instrument of God's will, and just like You know, when a bull wants to go somewhere, there is no human that will be able to stop it from getting there. God has set in motion events that no human being will be able to stop. You can only get out of the way or follow along. And this is what Zechariah is saying about the plans that were unfolding. You see, just like in the Old Testament, God's salvation here happens when God does something that only God can do. This is not a salvation. This is not something that can happen through human worth, through human effort, okay? And that's what Zechariah says is happening, that these events were predicted hundreds of years ago, and now this is happening, and he gives God praise for that. And at this point, Zechariah is totally focused on Israel. And so that's why we see in verse 71 that God's action brings salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show mercy on our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham to rescue us from the hand of our enemies. Now, what commentators point out here, and and we don't often recognize this language, but, but he's actually drawing on language from the Exodus, When he says to rescue us from the hands of our enemies. This is actually a line that's used in the Old Testament. Uh, But it's especially true when we get to verse 74 where he says this. He says, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear. Now, I don't know if you remember this, but this was the exact reason that God brought the Israelites out of Egypt. He says this uh, straight to Pharaoh. Uh, Look at Exodus 8.1. Then the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh and say to him, this is what the Lord says, let my people go, why? So that they may worship me. Some translations use the word serve. In the Old Testament, it's actually, you know, it, it can be both. It's both of those. To worship is to serve, right? So this first section is, the, is a, a song of praise because God is now acting in history to fulfill the covenant, the promise that he had made hundreds of years ago. But then, starting at verse 76, he sort of turns his attention to his son. He turns his attention to John to express pride at the role that John will play in the story of salvation. This is what he says. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him. To give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. All right, so what is Zechariah excited about? Well, we talked about this a little bit earlier. First of all, that after all of these years, he finally has a son, something he had waited his whole life for. But as excited as he is about having a son, he's so excited about the role that John the Baptist will play in the unfolding story of Israel. But I actually believe that Zechariah was saying something more than he even realized. You see, this, it says that this, song, th- that this song was sort of composed under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so while Zechariah seems mostly concerned with Israel's political situation... In verse 77, he actually says that the Lord will prepare the way for Jesus by giving his people the knowledge of salvation, but not through a military or political ruler, but through the forgiveness of their sins. And this continues, of course, the theme from last week that says that, you know, we can accomplish as humans some good things through our own efforts, through, you know, politics or government or science or religion, but ultimately salvation will come through God himself and only through God. And so what he was saying through this song was that what Israel needed most was not just political autonomy. What they needed was to have their sins forgiven. And as we go through the book of Luke over the next few months, we'll see that the real enemy is not the Romans. It's Satan. It's sin. It's the principalities and powers that hold people in bondage to evil and hate and selfishness and division and strife. And I know, sometimes it feels like we, we can't resist, or we try to resist all we want, but we can't overcome. And of course, that's why we need not good advice, but good news. Now, remember the picture that Isaiah painted of the city that is under siege and the messenger emerging from the smoke to bring shouts of joy from the city. That's John. That messenger is John. He's saying that Israel has been besieged by this conquering army, but our ally, who happens to be God himself, through Jesus, came to fight a battle that we will never could never win, a battle against sin and death. How lovely on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. But the news that Zechariah and John the Baptist brings, Zechariah knows that this good news is even better because it's not just for Israel, it's also for the Romans and for the Greeks and for the Samaritans and for the Assyrians and the Babylonians, and the Medes, and the Persians, and the Swedes, and Norwegians, and Germans, and Sierra Leoneans, and Egyptians, and Haitians, and Syrians, and Ethiopians. And it's good news for young and old. It's good news for rich and poor, rural and urban. It's good news for the squeaky clean religious people who have followed Jesus all their life, and for the people who have pasts that they are not proud of. It's good news for everyone. Now, Zechariah ends the song by saying that God, through Jesus, will guide our feet into the path of peace. And I want to land the plane on this today. It It is Peace Sunday, according to the Advent calendar. And so this is kind of where I want to focus as we end today. Now, the word peace... Uh, in the Greek is the is the word erene, and it's actually the equivalent of the Hebrew word shalom, which is probably more familiar to you. You probably heard that word before. In its simpler form, peace, biblical peace, describes a relationship of love and loyalty to God and to the people around us, to one another. And we oftentimes don't make this connection, but the Bible makes a great connection between salvation and... And peace. And you can see this in the way the historian and uh, theologian Husto Gonzalez describes the many ways that the Bible talks about salvation. Here's what he says He says, in the Bible, salvation means healing, liberation, freedom from the bondage of sin, promise of eternal life, and several nuances of each of these themes. Thus to say that Jesus is Savior means that he frees people from all evil, including sin, eternal death, disease, oppression, and exploitation. If we do not see all of this yet, it is because the work of Jesus has not been completed. The reign of God has not yet come to its full fruition. In other words, we sometimes limit salvation to what happens when we die. But the Bible expands our vision Of what salvation is and what it means to have peace in this life and the next. But whatever aspect of peace we happen to emphasize at any given moment in time, you have to understand that it's still something that only God can accomplish. And the way He accomplishes it is through Jesus Himself. But the question is then how does He do that? How does Jesus give us peace? Well, let me talk about four ways. There are probably more, but let me just talk about four. First of all, Jesus accomplishes peace by giving us peace with God through the forgiveness of our sins that he accomplished on the cross. See, as humans, we possess this sort of internal accounting ledger where we want to know that we are worth something. We want to justify the space that we take on this earth and the air that we breathe. And inherently, we have this sense that we justify our existence by what we add to the world, by our success, by our riches, by our good looks, by our athleticism, by our leadership ability, all of those things. But see, we also inherently know that we have contributed to all of the things that have gone wrong in the world. This is what the Bible calls sin, and so there are many people who live with a sense of guilt. Either they haven't accomplished as much as they wanted to, or they've messed up in ways that they think are beyond forgiveness. And so they can try to rectify that in a couple of different, in a couple of, or deal with it in a couple of different ways. One way is just to give in to despair and just say, it's, it's too late, I've done far too many bad things, so I may as well just give up. Or, they can spend the rest of their lives trying to do good things to make up for all of the bad that they've done in their life. But neither of these is how God wants us to live. You see, the good news is, is that the Bible tells us that there is no ledger. It tells us that our existence is justified through our faith in Jesus Christ himself. Romans 5.1 tells us, Since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace which we now stand. And when we have peace with God, when we know that our eternity is secure, then there are so many things in life that, that just become so much more insignificant. Just like Israel freed, uh, was freed from Egypt so that they could serve God, Jesus freed us from our sin. Not so that we could go and do anything we want, but so that we could serve him with joy and peace. Jesus frees us from sin and death, and that gives us peace. The second way that Jesus brings us peace is by disarming the principalities and powers That fight against us. And this is, again, one that we don't talk a lot about because we certainly live in a society that doesn't really believe in the spiritual battle that's going on. But the Bible is pretty clear that there are spiritual authorities, that there are powers, that there are spiritual beings that are at work in the world. You could even say that we are at war with them. And some people are terrified of this spiritual battle. Think of all the horror movies that have been made about demons. And I suppose we maybe should be afraid of this if it weren't for one central truth from the Bible. It said this is not a battle that we have to fight. The principalities and powers actually have no real power. They're paper tigers. They can deceive, but Colossians two fifteen tells us that Jesus disarmed the powers and authorities. And when he did that, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. And so you see, today, because of Jesus, they don't have any real power over us. And so we don't have to defeat them, we just have to resist them. And we have to unmask them for what they are, powerless against the authority of Christ. So Jesus gives us peace by disarming the principalities and powers. Third, Jesus brings us peace by bridging the world's divide, divides, creating one new people, one new family in the church. Now, of course, this divide started uh, by bridging the divide between Jews and Gentiles. Christians uh, in in, uh, Christian history have always extended this out to other areas of life too, certainly through ethnicity. And this is why the work of racial reconciliation is actually a very biblical value, biblical issue. Uh, Ephesians uh, 2, 17 and 18 says this, when it's talking specifically about Jews and Gentiles, Uh, Paul writes, he came and preached peace, meaning Jesus, preached peace to you who were far away, the Gentiles, and you who were near, the Jews. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. See, everyone becomes a part of the family of God through faith in Jesus. But it actually goes beyond Ethnicity to bridge all kinds of other, uh, all kinds of other divides as well. Uh, gender, socioeconomic divisions. That's why it says in Galatians chapter 3. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free. That's socioeconomic divides. Neither male nor female, gender divides for you are all one in Jesus Christ. In other words, if you are in Christ, you are a part of the family of God. And when you're a part of the family of God, then every other identity that you have takes a back seat to your identity as a, as a follower of Jesus, okay? That's just true about us. The hard part is living out that in reality. And sometimes we continue to perpetuate the divides not realizing that God, through Jesus Christ, made peace among all of those things that divide us by forming his church as the family of God. Finally, Jesus brings peace to the world through this same church as we bear witness to the good news that Jesus is the liberating king. All right, let's look again at the last verse of Zechariah's song. He says this, because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. The first thing that he says is that Jesus brings light into the darkness. And this is always a reference to teaching, to enlightening people to the truth. And if certainly that's something that, that Jesus did there. Critical aspect of Jesus' ministry was Teaching and also modeling what it means to live as God intended us to live. And so Jesus gives us peace as we live the way He has called us to live. Uh, Like Jesus said in the Beatitude, Blessed are the peacemakers. He calls us to be peacemakers. And so, how do we do that? Well, continue to look at the teaching of Jesus by being the kind of people who turn the other cheek, who go the extra mile who give the coats off our back, who love our neighbors and do good to those who persecute us. And in living this way and being ready to give a reason for the hope that we have with gentleness and respect, we suddenly become the bearers of good news. How beautiful on the mountain are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. So the questions that I want you to wrestle with today are really a couple of them. Number one, as we go through this Advent season and you think about what Jesus has done and all of the ways that he brings peace to our world, the question is, is does he have that effect on you? Does the knowledge of Jesus coming as Savior and Messiah give you peace? Or are you still working to try to justify your existence in other ways? And the second question is this. How beautiful are your feet? If you believe that what we have is good news, and we're called to be bearers, we're we're called to be witnesses to this good news, How beautiful are your feet. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word once again that (laughs) brings light in the darkness, that we might see clearly who you are, what you have done, who we are, what you're calling us to be and to do. Lord, we thank you for the peace and reconciliation that you've given us to God and to each other. In this world, we thank you that you were willing to pay the price that it costs in order to to buy our freedom so that we might serve you with joy. And Lord, I pray that in this Advent season, in all of the busyness and parties and dinners and gifts and get togethers and things like that, Lord, that you would remind us again that you came to give us peace that you came to give us salvation. And Lord, may we be people who live out that peace in all of the various ways, give us assurance of that salvation, and make us effective witnesses to your gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to the Wake Park Church Sermon Podcast from Wake Park Church in Northeast Minneapolis. We hope this week's sermon helped you learn to know and love Jesus more serve Him in your unique place in the world. If you have feedback or questions, get in touch with us by emailing podcast at wakeparkchurch.org.